The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We are going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 this morning in a message entitled, Christ, the sole and sufficient Savior of his people. Christ, the sole and sufficient Savior of his people. Uh, But let's begin reading at verse 13. In Colossians chapter 1, he, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. I'm sorry, he, the Father, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word this morning. This is your word. May we love your word, Father God. And as we love it, and as we hear it this morning, make us receptive to it. Help us to respond to its authority and to see its direct application, its applicability to every area of our lives. By your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, Apply it, we pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to obey what your Spirit is saying to your church this morning through your word. May we be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. By it, may our minds be renewed and our hearts and our lives transformed. We thank you. We ask this for your praise and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Now you will remember from the previous messages in this series that Paul has been writing to a congregation that has had some people come to it and say, some false teachers come to it and say, essentially, well, your belief in Christ is fine. Your acceptance of the gospel, that's okay. But, and right there is the problem, but if you will add to your belief in Christ, if you will add to your belief in the gospel, this additional teaching, this secret teaching we bring to you, this higher teaching that we bring to you, your experience and knowledge of God will be deepened. Oh, what you believe about Christ is fine. There are just some other things that you don't know about, in addition to Christ and to his gospel, that will truly deepen your experience of God. That's the gist of the message of these false teachers who had infiltrated the Colossian church, at least as far as we can somewhat reconstruct it from what Paul says about it uh, in this letter, especially in chapter 2. We will look at the, the, the specifics, and again, even the specifics will be somewhat general, because Paul doesn't give us a point-by-point refutation of the false teaching he was fighting. He just, based on what he says, what little he says about it, and what he says about Christ and the gospel, we can reconstruct some of it, and we'll do that when we get to chapter 2. And we have seen that one way the Apostle Paul undercuts this type of false teaching is to say to the Colossians, not, not explicitly, But his meaning is clear nonetheless. His intention is unmistakable. He essentially says to them, think about who Christ is. How can you add to him? What is there to add to Christ? And in verses 13 through 20, which we looked at last time, uh, we we, we see the Apostle Paul uh, giving a, a cascade of truths about the person of Christ, specifically to convince us that we don't need to go anywhere else but him for the fullness of the gospel, for the fullness of the Christian experience, for the fullness of the Christian life itself. Paul, we have seen, has has piled up descriptions of Jesus Christ. And, And to this congregation at Colossae, some believers, some unbelievers... Some there because they've already come to Christ. Others there because they're interested in the teachings of the gospel, perhaps, but have not yet come to Christ. Paul sets before them all and before us who Christ is. Because he knows if we understand who Christ is, we will never fall for a teaching which says you need Christ plus something else. The only reason people fall for a teaching like that is because they don't really know who Christ is. But if we know who he is, we will never fall for a teaching that says we need Christ plus something else. We will never fall for a teaching which says, well, it's okay to start with Christ and to believe in his gospel, but to really get deep into the faith, to really get deep into the knowledge of God, you need something else, some ritual, some action, some belief, some mystical experience of power, some extra thing which isn't received upon first coming to faith in Christ. And to that, the Apostle Paul says, if you really understand who Christ is, then you'll understand that as long as you are in relationship with him, 
He is sufficient for everything you need in your salvation. Amen? Now let's briefly review some of the things that Paul has said in response to his implied question, who is this Christ? Look at verse 13 where he says Christ is God's beloved son. Literally that means he's the son of the father's love. The son of the father's love. He is the very manifestation of the love of God for the world. If you want to know how God loves the world, you look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know how far God is willing to go to redeem his people, you look at Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. Not only is he the son of the Father's love, he goes on to say in verse 14 that Christ is the Redeemer. In him we have redemption. He's the Redeemer. He's the one who brings us out from under the domain of darkness. You can almost hear the false teachers say, okay, you have Christ, but if you really want to be freed from the domain of darkness and of demonic powers, then you need to have these extra things. And the Apostle Paul says, no, he's the Redeemer. He's the one in whom we have redemption. And then he goes on in verse 15 to say that Christ is the very image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the manifestation of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. You want to see God? Look at Christ. Christ is God incarnate. He is divine. He is in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He's also, Paul says, the firstborn of all creation. He says that in verse 15, and as I explained last time, that in no way means that he is the first created being who then created everything else. That's precisely what cultists like the Jehovah's Witnesses like to claim. But it doesn't mean that at all. Paul is speaking of primacy here. Christ is the one who has primacy. He's the inheritor of all things. In the ancient Jewish world, the firstborn son had the primary rights of inheritance, the first rights so to speak. He had priority over his brothers, the younger brothers, and according to Jewish custom would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Well, as the firstborn of all creation, Christ is the inheritor of all creation. That's what Paul means here by firstborn of all creation. He is the one who has the rights of inheritance. He is the one who is of priority, of primacy. And all of creation is under him. And all of creation is for him. Paul tells us that later on in verse 16, that it's been created by him. But it's also been created for him. He's the purpose of that creation. This is the Christ that we love and serve. Also, in verses 15 through 17, he goes on to explain that because he is the firstborn of creation, he is the Lord of creation. He is supreme over creation. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say he's supreme in the church as well. He's not only Lord of creation, he's the Lord of the church. He is the head over his body, the church. And he goes on to say in verse 19 that in him the fullness of God dwells. Apparently, some of these false teachers were saying, okay, you have Christ, that's fine, but if you want the fullness of whatever it is they were offering you, you you know, follow them, uh, you have to do this. You have to follow this. You have to believe this. And Paul comes back and says, no, no, he is the fullness. The fullness is in him. You don't need to look elsewhere to find the fullness. You want the full gospel? 
You want full Christianity? Paul says you want the whole thing? It's in him. You don't look somewhere else other than him. You start with him. You continue with him. You end with him. All the fullness is in him. You want to participate in that fullness? Paul is saying you don't look elsewhere from him because it's the Father's pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him. And then finally we saw that Paul says that he is the reconciler in verse 20. Christ is the one who has reconciled us to God. He is the agent of reconciliation which the Father has appointed. We were alienated from the Father, and the Son is the one who has reconciled us. The Son is the one who has brought us back into relationship with the Father. And in all of this church, Paul wants to drive home one grand point, a point he never wants us to forget. And that point is this, Christ is the sole and the sufficient Savior of his people. He is the only and he is the sufficient Savior of his people. He is the sole and sufficient Savior of his people. And in the passage before us today, verses 21 through 23, he's going to drive that truth home again and apply it in four different ways. And I'd like to point to some of those things to you this morning briefly. Uh, Notice four great truths that Paul is going to drive home to stress, that Christ is the sole and sufficient Savior, that he is the sole and sufficient Savior of his people. In verse 21, we learn that all people apart from Christ are out of fellowship with God, separated from God. In verse 22, secondly, we learn that all people in Christ are fully reconciled to God. In the second half of verse 22, we learn, thirdly, that God purposes, excuse me, (coughs) God purposes to perfect all his people. And the fourth great truth we learn is that Christians are to strive towards the hope of the gospel. We see that in verse 23. Now, We want to look at these verses together this morning and see these four great truths set forth by Paul. Again, notice what Paul is doing. In verse 21, he tells us that we were apart from Christ. In verse 22, in the first half of the verse, he tells us, we who believe, we now stand in Christ. What is your standing in Christ? Are you lacking something? is is what Paul wants the Colossians to think about. In the second half of verse 22, he goes on to tell us what God plans to make of us in Christ. And in verse 23, he tells us what our responsibility is in sanctification, in light of these glorious things that God has done and promised, and in light of the sole and sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at these words today. First, uh, look at verse 21 where he addresses us, the Colossians and us, as those who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There in verse 21, the Apostle Paul tells us the state of all people who are not believing and trusting in Christ. He says, you want to know what you're like if you're not believing and trusting Christ? This is what you're like. 
And if you are believing and trusting in Christ, this is what you were like. And Paul, again, is basically saying all people apart from Christ, they are out of fellowship with God, separated from God, but not in some neutral sort of way. They are hostile to God. And they are unable to please God because of evil deeds. Paul says all three of those things to these folks in the Colossians church. Uh, but these words do not apply only to them. Paul is not just saying, boy, you, 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 you Colossians, and they were Gentiles, remember, so it would be easy to just think he might be applying. No, he's not just saying, boy, you Gentiles in Colossae really lived wicked lives. And now since you've become Christians, you're doing a lot better. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying much more than that. Now, it is true that he is pointing out to them what they were, because he wants to show them just how sufficient Christ has been as a Savior in bringing about a change in their life. But when Paul says to, to, to this Colossian congregation that before they were in Christ, they were alienated from God, that they were hostile to God, that they were engaged in works of wickedness, that can be said of every human being who does not trust Christ. Now, that's a radical statement to many, but it's Paul's statement. Apart from Christ, we, all of us, are out of fellowship with God. We are hostile to him. We are unable to please him. Let's look a little more deeply at those three things that he says there. First of all, what does it mean to be out of fellowship with God? What does it mean to be alienated? I mean, that's the word Paul uses. It means to not be in a, reliv- in a living relationship to God, in a living relationship of blessing with the only being in the universe who is able to bring blessing. And I'm not talking about material blessing. I'm not talking about earthly blessing here. I'm talking about the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of everlasting life, the hope of everlasting life, the the blessing of joy and of peace, the blessing of knowing that we are loved of the Father and accepted in Christ, the blessing of knowing that God is 100% for us, as John Piper likes to say, and not against us. If we are alienated from God, if we are not in relationship to Jesus Christ through faith, we are apart from the hope of these blessings from God. Apart from Christ, there are no ultimate blessings. Why? Because apart from Christ, we are alienated from God. In fact, we are his enemies the Bible says. We are at enmity with God, meaning we are at war with God. We are at war with God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in that second word to say that we are hostile in our minds to him. What's Paul saying by that? Well, he means first and foremost that sin has corrupted our way of thinking about God. Hostility toward God begins in the mind, begins in the heart, and then it manifests itself outwardly. This is why we read in Romans 1 that you know, God turns people over to a reprobate mind, and then out of that reprobate mind proceeds all kinds of evil. It begins in the mind. Sin has corrupted our way of thinking about God, and that wrong thinking leads to sin which further perverts and destroys our 
thoughts about him, leading to more sin. And it just goes on and on and on. And God mercifully restrains that. We know that man is totally depraved. That means every faculty of our being has been affected by sin. But thankfully, we're not utterly depraved in the sense that we sin to the uttermost degree possible all the time. Otherwise, life would be unlivable, right? So God and his mercy restrains that, but there are many, many a time when he, he removes that restraining grace. He turns people over to that reprobation. He allows sin to run its course and brings devastating judgment to a people, to a nation, to a society, to a culture that way. I, I believe we see that happening now in our society. When we were alienated from God, our natural condition was to be totally hostile to his standards. And Romans 1, verses 21 through 32, gives a much more detailed description of the perverted thinking of unbelievers and its consequences. I, I just want to read to you the final part of that passage, where Paul describes what a society looks like when it has been given over to reprobation and is in full-blown hostility against God. We read, starting in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. A, other translations say a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is one that is uh, unable now to respond to truth, to reason. Uh, it's unable to respond. Uh, it cannot be persuaded. It has been given over. Um, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I could imagine somebody reading this, let's say, 50 years ago, would never have imagined that all manner of unrighteousness would one day include same-sex marriage, the murder of the unborn, transgenderism, and the like, right? Could you, you think anybody 50 years ago, 100 years ago thought that it could ever come to that? But it has. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. He includes gossip with murder. <laughs> Just think about it. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, all you young people. Look, look, where, look it's right there in the middle of all that evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What does a culture look like that has been given over to reprobation and is in full-blown hostility against God? Looks a lot like ours, doesn't it? Looks an awful lot like ours. There is also a, a powerful self-centeredness associated with hostility of mind toward God. Apart from Christ, you are just turned in on yourself. You are self-preoccupied. Your prime concern in, in, in all of reality is you advancing your agendas, your desires, your goals, because you've turned your back on God. And a person in a state of self-centeredness 
is incapable of submitting to the rule of God in their lives. We're incapable of having God's outlook in life. His outlook, he says, is this. I am first. I am first in everything. You are to love your neighbor. You are not to be so caught up in yourself that you fail to love your neighbor. And you are to give of yourself to your neighbor. You're not to be turned in on yourself, constantly self-preoccupied, so that you are not loving me and that you are not loving your neighbor. The Apostle Paul says that until we are in Christ, we are hostile in mind. We are resistant to that type of thinking. We're resistant to God, which again gives rise to much of the wickedness we just read about in Romans chapter 1. And you may think to yourself today, if you're not in Christ, I don't know if anyone has come in here this morning who is not in Christ, but you may think, I'm not hostile to God. I don't hate God. I'm not at enmity with him. I I may be a little apathetic. I mean, what's okay for you, Pastor? What's okay for all you Christians? That's good for you, but I don't have to accept that myself. I'm a good person, right? The Apostle Paul says that if that's your posture, if that's your attitude, you're hostile to God. Because he won't accept indifference. He wants the knee bowed. He wants you to understand that he is Lord. He wants you to acknowledge that, and not only with with your lips, but with your heart and in everything that you do. So the Apostle Paul says we are alienated, we are hostile in mind, and he goes on to say that in light of that, we do evil deeds, we do wicked works. Again, some of which we just read about. Now this is another hard thing for some people. Because we look around at people who don't profess faith in Christ, and we see some of them doing things that seem very good. I've been blessed in my life by interactions with many people who do not profess faith in Christ. I've been recipients of their kindness. We all have, right? But the Apostle Paul characterizes all the actions of those who do not believe in Christ as wicked works. Why? Because the things they are doing, let me put it this, why? Why does he do that? Why? Is it because the things that they are doing in and of themselves are bad? No, not necessarily. When someone shows you an act of kindness, that's not bad in and of itself, right? Is it? But apart from Christ, no one can do anything from the right motives, for the right reasons for the right purpose, with a right interest in serving God, with a right interest in serving your neighbor. We are intrinsically self-centered. We are naturally disobedient to the law of God. And the Apostle Paul says, this is the state of a person, of all people, apart from Christ, alienated from God, hostile to him in their minds, and actually doing wicked works, whether wicked in and of themselves like the ones Paul lists in Romans 1, or wicked by virtue of the underlying motives. Wicked because your act of kindness is not for the glory of God. Your act of kindness perhaps is self-motivated, motivated by self, whatever it might be. It is so vital that we recognize that, church. Human beings are not standing in a neutral relationship to God. 
There are only two relationships in which human beings stand to God, either alienated from him or reconciled to him. That's it. Those are the only two relationships uh, in which we, we stand with God. And we do not say, uh, we do not say that as Christians, you know, to congratulate ourselves and to say to those who are not Christians, oh, look at you, you haven't arrived like we have, right? That, that's not why we say this. We say that because we love non-Christians and we want them to have the fullness of the blessing of God. And when I stand up and say, if you're apart from Christ, you're not in a relationship of blessing with God, I'm, I'm not bragging, I'm not boasting, oh, look at you, you're not in, I have the blessings, you don't, no. And I'm certainly not saying that I am any better than you are. Because I would be in a relationship of cursing, of condemnation, had God not saved me from darkness and destruction. And, and that's true of all of you. I am saying to you, dear friends who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, come to Christ in faith. Because you will not taste the blessing of God, the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life apart from him. There's no other way. No religion can change that. No amount of good works or morality can change that. And that's what Paul is saying to these Colossians. There is no blessing outside of Christ. There's only blessing inside of Christ. He is the sole Savior. Remember that. Paul is saying to the Colossian church, remember that. He is the sole Savior. He's saying, remember what you were. You have seen your lives change. And that is evidence, Paul says, that he is the sole and sufficient Savior. And that's the first great truth that Paul proclaims here in this passage. What's the second thing that he drives home? We see it in verse 22. All people, Paul stresses, all people in Christ are fully reconciled to God. Not partially reconciled, not mostly reconciled, but fully reconciled to God. If you are in Christ, you have been, past tense, reconciled to God. Amen? And this is important in light of what we just read in verse 21. <laughs> Here Paul reminds the Colossians that reconciliation in their case was already an accomplished fact. Before their conversion, the Colossians had been sinners, alienated from God, and enemies of God in their minds because of their wicked works. They desperately needed to be reconciled. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his matchless grace, had taken the initiative. Paul says, note the words, you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. What is Paul pointing to? Paul is saying that the cost of God reconciling you, was it was borne by Christ. He bore the cost of your being brought out of alienation and into the family of God, and, and an awful cost it was. Amen? His death on the cross, and not just the physical sufferings, but the immense spiritual suffering of having to take upon him, himself, the guilt of all of our sin. He who knew no sin, becoming sin, becoming so closely identified with, with sin and with sinners, that we might become the righteousness 
of God in him. That's just incredible. And Paul is pointing out that this blood reconciliation at the cost of the price of the death of the Son of, of the Son of God's love, as he is called, provided full reconciliation. I mean, again, notice how he says it. You he has now reconciled. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. What's Paul's point? Again, his point is Christ has completely reconciled you and nothing needs to be added to that <coughs> for you to stand right before God. What stands you before God? What makes you right before God? It's Christ and him crucified and you're having appropriated the benefits of Christ by faith. It's that that stands you in good stead before God, fully reconciled the hymn writer put it this way in heaven he said we will be more happy but not more secure think about that more happy but not more secure you see what he's saying when you are reconciled to god as you have embraced christ christ by faith in your present experience because god has reached out to you in love and grace and drawn you to himself he has ended his hostility with you, and he has ended your alienation from him. You are now in fellowship with him, saving fellowship, a saving relationship, and you cannot be more reconciled than you are right now. You cannot be more justified than you are right now. You cannot be more accepted by God than you are right now. You may be one day more holy than you are now, and we all will be. You may one day be more happy than you are now, and I'm sure we all will be when we get to heaven. But you will never be more reconciled than you are now. You will never be more secure than you are now. In glory, we will be perfect. In glory, we will be without tears. But we are no more secure in glory than we are right now because of the perfection of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Look what Paul is saying. You Colossians, somebody telling you that you need Christ plus something else, you're reconciled in him. What are you looking someplace else for? He has reconciled you. He's put an end to enmity between you and God. You don't need to look anyplace else. Thirdly, notice what he says in the second half of verse 22. God purposes to perfect all his people. You he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. It's another great truth we learn in this passage. Paul is saying that it's not just that Christ has reconciled us and saved us from the punishment that we deserve, it's that God is working his plan in us to make us perfect. Paul is saying, if you hear those false teachers saying, oh, this Christianity stuff that you learned so far, this gospel stuff you learned so far, it's okay. But we've got some stuff that will really make your life complete. The Apostle Paul is saying, God's plan for you is to be perfect. You need nothing that you don't find in Christ. You got a better alternative than that? 
The Apostle Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why God has reconciled us, to present us to himself, holy, blameless, and above reproach. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm I'm telling you, God is going to present you holy before him. He means, well, cleansed from sin, certainly. He means separated from the world to God for his glory and for his service. We are wholly his, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and we are wholly, H-O-L-Y, cleansed from sin. He's going to present us wholly before himself. What does he mean when he says we're blameless? He means we are without any blemish whatsoever. No imperfections remain. Now, right now, imperfections remain, right? And it's, we, 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 we long to serve God from a pure heart, but there are so many, I mean, so many uh, affections in our heart that compete with God, right? So many things in our heart that compete with God for our affections. And it's all because we still have this thing called sin residing in these bodies of flesh and, and, uh, Satan, you know, the world, the flesh, the devil, Satan, and the world, they they conspire and they appeal to the flesh, to the sin remaining, and so often we are led astray. Paul talks about this raging battle in Romans 7, right? The things I hate as a Christian now, as one with a new nature and a new mind, the things I hate, the sin I hate, that I do. And that which I love, that which I long to do, obey God, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, right? And we all, we all can say that with Paul, right? We have all experienced that with Paul. So imperfection remains. But the time is coming in the day of our glorification. The end of the age, when Christ returns, when we will be saved from even the very presence of sin. And we will be glorified together with him, right? As the hymn writer said, till he calls me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. That's our hope, amen? That's what awaits us. In that day, we will be presented blameless, blameless. We will be saved from even the very presence of sin. And then he says that he presents us above reproach. And what he means by that is that there will be absolutely nothing that anybody can find in our character that is less than perfection. Uh, And again, that won't happen in this life, but it's going to happen uh, in the life to come. And the Apostle Paul says that's what you get to look forward to when you're reconciled with God through Christ, because that is what God is working towards. One day he will present you, yes, you, you struggling saint of God, to himself, holy, blameless, and irreproachable. Top that, you false teachers, right? Top that. He stresses that God is doing this, that God wants to present this to himself. You know, this morning Jenny showed me a card and what struck me initially was inside, it says, watching and praying with you to see God's amazing work in your life. Do you know God is doing an amazing work in each of our lives? How else can we describe? What other word 
what word other than amazing can we call a work in which he's taking sinners and making them saints? Amen? God is working in our lives. And there's a scripture here from 1 John 5, verse 4. Whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And no matter how difficult it may seem at times, uh, no matter how hard, how difficult even serving God may seem at times, the, the victory we have is our faith, our faith in these truths, amen? And, you know, we, we tend to look at our sin and, and, and our struggles, and we tend to think there's no way God, okay, maybe he's working in me, but there's no way he can use me for anything. That's just not true. Right? He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When we are weak, then we can say we are strong. And on the front of the card, it says, God doesn't need a lot to do a lot. All David has was five stones, and all David used was one. <laughs> I think of the boy, the little, the, 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 the boy at the, when Jesus fed the 5,000. He gave Jesus some loaves and some fishes. Right? It, it may not have seemed like anything. And what did God do with that? He multiplied it and fed thou. He takes our feeblest of efforts. <laughs> and through his power, which is seen through our weakness, accomplishes so much. Amen? And it's because he's doing an amazing work, an amazing supernatural work in our lives, transforming us from sinners to saints. Well, we're already declared to be saints. We're already declared to be righteous. When we stand before God, even now, when we go to him in prayer, when we, when we, we stand before his holy presence, it, he accepts us and he receives us as those clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We stand as though we are as righteous as Christ. That's our position before God. Unfortunately, that's not our condition in this life, but through the process of sanctification, through everything that happens to us in this life, through everything we experience and our responses to it, he is conforming us more and more and more to the image of Christ so that in this life, we are becoming more and more outwardly what he has already declared us to be inwardly. But again, that won't be complete in this life. We won't be perfect. We won't be perfected. We won't be complete until we go to be with him uh, in glory. But the fact is, uh, we can look at what we were. Somebody said this. I hope I get this right. Uh, I can't remember it now. I wish I could remember. It was a, it, I don't have it in my notes. It just popped into my but I can't remember the exact thing, so I don't want to say it. Um, but the bottom line is we can look at, at, at where we were and what our lives were like spiritually. Uh, we can look back now and we can see how we lived in hostility toward God, right? How we were alienated from God and hostile in our minds, and we can look at all our wicked works, and we can see the work God has done and how he has taken us from that, out of that darkness, and how he has brought us in to the light, the light of his truth, the light of his son. And we can be encouraged by that. We can be strengthened to know that God is doing this amazing work. And, and the thought of, of, of needing to add anything to that work is just, uh, it's foolishness. And that, that's really what Paul's point is, in, in, has been so far in, in the first 23 verses 
of Colossians. And he's pointing here in verse 23, uh, verse 22, um, to the fact that God's ultimate purpose for us is fellowship with him. We are made for eternal fellowship and relationship with the living God. But God is holy, and he cannot fellowship with sin and darkness. So our holiness, it's not just a little addendum, a little afterthought that he tacks on to the end of our salvation. Our holiness, this holiness, he is working in us. Amen? Because he wants to fellowship with us eternally. And yes, one day he is going to present us before himself spotless. And we will inaugurate at that point an eternity of fellowship with God. By the way, that's what makes heaven heaven. Um, Not the streets of gold. Not the fact that you can eat as much chocolate as you want and not get fat. I hear people talk like that. Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can eat as much chocolate as I want. That's not what makes heaven heaven. I think we know that, right? Even a reunion with our loved ones. We heard, you know, Pastor Caleb speak um, last week, right? About there is no marriage in heaven. We will know all the saints of God. We won't be in a special relationship with any of them, even spouses and children who have gone before us. We will all be in a special relationship with Christ. Amen? And because Christ is there, God is there. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Our holiness, he is working in us because he wants to fellowship with us eternally. One day he is going to present us before himself spotless, and we will inaugurate at that point an eternity of fellowship, a time that will not end. That's what we are created for. And the Apostle Paul says, and when I say the Apostle Paul says, he's not saying any of this explicitly, but it's all implied in what he is saying to the Colossians. Paul is saying, and you're looking somewhere else? You're looking at Christ plus something else? This is what God has planned for you in Christ? And you're thinking about looking at Christ plus something else? I expect him to say at this point, oh, you foolish Colossians. Right? Like he said to the Galatians. Fourthly and finally, he tells us what our response needs to be to all of this. How do we respond to this understanding that Christ is our sole and sufficient Savior? I mean, essentially, Paul says here in verse 23 that Christians must strive towards the hope of the gospel and rely on Christ. I mean, look at his words in verse 23. If indeed (coughs) you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul is saying we as Christians must strive toward the hope of the gospel. We don't turn away to another hope. We stay with the hope that the gospel has set before us. The hope that one day we will stand before him faultless, with exceeding glory and great joy. That's our hope. And Paul says we stay with that hope. We don't find some other hope outside of Christ. We don't find some ritual outside of Christ. We don't find some teaching outside of Christ. We don't find something outside of Christ at all. We stay with that hope and we rely on Christ. How does Paul say that we continue in the faith? Look again at the three words that he uses. 
How do we continue in the faith? He says, stable, stable, steadfast, and not shifting from or not moved away from the gospel. What does he mean by that? What does Paul mean that we are to be stable as we continue in the faith? He means that we should be established or well-founded in the truth. That's the stability he's talking about there. Stay with the word of the gospel. Don't let someone else say, hey, I've got something in addition to the gospel. I've got something in addition to the word of God that will take you deeper into where you need to be. For years, there have been commercials put on by the Mormons, which advertise for us another testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have any any of you ever seen those commercials? Right? Another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Apostle Paul. Stay with the gospel. Reject those who say Christ plus something else. You have Oprah Winfrey. She calls herself a Christian. She does. Yet she promotes the works of New Age gurus like Eckhart Tolle. She has even proclaimed, I heard this, so this isn't even like, you know, hearsay. I've heard her say this, that Christ is not the only way to God. Strange words for a professing Christian to say, don't you think? Hear the word of the Apostle Paul. Stay with the gospel. Reject those who say Christ plus something else. Now listen, she might even say, I don't know, I probably not, but she might. She might even say, oh, Christ is sufficient. But she denies clearly that he is the only way. Remember the title of the message this morning. Christ, the sole and sufficient Savior of his people. He's not just our sufficient Savior. He is our only Savior. Amen? Hear the word of the Apostle Paul. Stay with the gospel. Reject those who say Christ plus something else. Then he goes on to say we are to be steadfast. What does he mean by steadfast? Is he just repeating himself? You know, stable, steadfast. No, steadfast here is to remain loyal to the truth, which you first heard. Stable means to be well-grounded in the truth, the truth of the gospel. Steadfast means we stay with that truth. We remain loyal to that truth. We don't waver from that truth. And finally, he says, do not be moved. Don't shift. Not just from the truth, but from the hope of the gospel. Don't be dissuaded from the hope that I've set before you, Paul says. And Paul lays out three reasons why they shouldn't be dissuaded from the hope that they've had presented to them. First of all, because they have already heard of it. Secondly, because the whole world is being preached this hope, and many are coming to this hope. And thirdly, because he himself is a minister of that hope. He says, for all those reasons, don't you give up on that hope. Don't let someone come in with a message which tickles your ears and leads you away from that hope. Stay with that hope. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from. Now, what does this all mean for us? You know, we too have this temptation. And it's even greater today in some ways. You know, I always say this. Back in the days of the Apostle Paul, the false teachers literally, physically had to come to a church, infiltrate that congregation, right, in order to lead them away. Today, we have the internet, so-called Christian television, so-called Christian radio, 
books of every imaginable kind. There may never be a false teacher who gets within 100 miles of this building. And yet every single one of us here. I mean, we could take out our phone right now. <laughs> go on the internet. And have false teaching presented to us, right? We have to be so careful. So careful. There are people who still peddle the teaching. That it's Christ plus something else. Yes, you're a Christian, but if you really want to live the fullness of the experience of the Christian life, you need, and you fill in the blank, some charismatic experience, some definite experience of the Holy Spirit, which allows you to do miraculous things that you have never been able to do before. That will really take you to the depths of of Christian experience. Some turn to psychology. Uh, psychological counseling. It's, it's amazing to me how many Christians think they need counseling from someone whose theories and beliefs about man and his problems run completely counter to the word of God, right? And yet, I've seen many a Christian run off and basically sit under the counsel of the ungodly. Um. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you have Christ, you have all the blessings that go with Christ. So do not look for Christ plus something else. Don't change the focus of, of your original hope. Don't add to Christ, he says, because he's to sup. I love this. To supplement Christ is to supplant Christ. Amen? To supplement Christ is to supplant Christ. To add to Christ is to take away from his sufficiency. And to suggest that there is something outside of Christ that we need is to mock his glorious all-sufficiency and the very provision of the Father who loves us. Amen? For those who are looking for assurance this morning, I think Paul is reminding you, don't look somewhere else for that assurance. Don't even look at your own good works. Look to Christ for that assurance. Yes, yes, your good works, okay? Provide a beautiful evidence or mark of your being in Christ because it's a mark of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And the Holy Spirit at work in you, the Holy Spirit only works in those uh, who have been reconciled to God, who have been regenerated. So yes, your good works do provide evidence or a mark of you being in Christ, but ultimately it's Christ himself who is the ground of our assurance. Amen? It's Christ himself. He is solely sufficient. Rest on him for your assurance of salvation. And if you are apart from him this morning, if you do not love him, if you have not trusted in him and placed your faith in him, if you are not walking in relationship with him, you are not a party to the blessings which he will bring to all his people. You have no part in that. Instead, you will be, you have a part only in his in his curses, in his condemnation, and in the uh, judgment of hell forever. What do you do about that? You flee to Christ. You flee to Christ. You cast your cares, your burdens, your sins upon him. You rest or you trust in him to save you from your sin, which again will assuredly condemn you. And you trust him to give you the blessings of which you are now empty. And I promise you, on the authority 
of, of God's word on the authority of the Christ who is solely sufficient, he will not cast you out. Come to him in faith, believing, and he will receive you as his own. Amen? He will. So if there are anyone here, if there is anyone here this morning, please, and you want to talk more about this, uh, see me or, or Pastor Mike or Pastor Steve after service, and we'd be happy to talk to you and to share more uh, about this with you. But I would encourage you, I would urge you, flee to Christ in faith believing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. Your word is so much more glorious than we can even take in. And, and there's no way we can, we can do it justice when we preach it, when we proclaim it, when we, when we talk about it. Uh, but we thank you that the power is in your word. It's in your message and not in any messenger. And we know that your Holy Spirit will take your word this morning and you will apply it to our hearts. I pray that the word that has been spoken to mo- this morning will be good seed sown on good ground in each and every one of our hearts. Don't let the enemy have access to it to steal it away, but let it bear much lasting and abiding fruit in all of our lives. I pray, Father God, that though we live in a world full of false teaching, we have access to it, and it has access to us, I pray that we will never be deceived, that we will never be drawn away by any message that says Christ plus something else, by any temptation to add to what Christ has done in any way, any temptation to look uh, or to hope in Christ plus something else. But let us just rest fully and completely on these great truths of our reconciliation in Christ, our redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And let us hope with full assurance in the glory to come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.